0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. Well, welcome to this uh, third study in the book of Colossians. I'm so excited to actually begin to dive into this phenomenal content uh, with you. And I should probably say up front, uh, because I'm a little concerned, Uh, I've been sick uh, this last week, and so my throat's a little scratchy, uh, and so if I start coughing and hacking, I uh, deeply apologize. (laughs) Uh, But want to get into the passage, uh, we're actually starting in the book of Colossians, and uh, we kind of, in our our overview sessions in the last two sessions, uh, we're kind of looking at verse one and two, the fact that here's Paul writing the letter with Timothy to this group of saints and faithful brothers who were in Christ in this little town uh, in Colossae. And again, uh, this is in that Lycus Valley. It's surrounded next to Heropolis and Laodicea. And for what we, what we can gather from the, from the writings, here is Paul and his Roman imprisonment. And uh, he's writing the letters of like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And he's sending those letters with Titicus and Anisimus. And uh, this is one of those. Again, uh, he's heard all these things, which we're going to look at this morning, from Epaphras. And uh, he's heard about some of this concern and some of this false doctrine that is being taught uh, in this Lycus Valley area. And so Paul is writing the book of Colossians, one, to declare the wonders and the reality of who Jesus is, but also to correct the problems that are going on in this little tiny church. And so in this particular study, what i like to do is I want to look at verse 3 down to verse uh, 8 with you. This is kind of the introduction of what Paul is saying. Uh, This is kind of his greeting, uh, kind of an expanded greeting that he comes out of uh, verse 1 and 2. This is his uh, overarching, like, hey, this is what we've been hearing about you. And man, this just delights my heart, says Paul. Uh, So what I'd like to do is just read the passage with you, and uh, then let's dive into it. So this is uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 through 8. Paul writes this. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. "...since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, Who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the spirit? What an incredible passage. Uh, Paul begins in verse 3, and he says, We think, we we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Uh, Isn't it interesting that here is Paul? He hasn't visited this little church. Uh, He's just heard about it from Epaphras, and yet he's saying, Hey, I am constantly giving God thanks, praying always for you. And I just want to, as a side thought, how often do we tell people that we will pray for them and yet never do? In other words, it seems like a Christian cliche. You know, you're walking around church and someone says, oh, you know, I have this problem. And of course, you know, we want to sound spiritual. And so we say, hey, brother or sister, hey, I'll, I'll be praying for you. Here's the question. How often do we actually pray For those to whom we say we'll pray for. And I love this fact that Paul is so overwhelmed and concerned for this little church that though he's never even heard of them, there is such a burden that he is praying and giving God thanks for them. And I would really exhort us not just to give the lip service of prayer or thanksgiving, but to genuinely give God thanks and be praying for the people that God has surrounded us with. Uh, even if we have never met them, you know, like, like some of the missionaries or uh, missions or organizations that maybe we know of, even though we may have never met, let's be praying and exhorting and thanking God for these dear brothers and sisters. But listen to what he says in verse three. Again, he says, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And then he explains why he is giving God thanks and why he's always praying for them. And he says this in verse four, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Paul says, I've heard something from Epaphras about you. He says, I have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Uh, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word faith. Uh, But a lot of times we have this idea of like, oh, it's this this mental uh, understanding. It's this mental grasp of something. But faith goes far beyond just a mental apprehension of something. See, we do not have faith in a philosophy. Uh, We do not have faith in a concept. We have faith in a person whose name is Jesus. Uh, All of us have faith. Every single person on planet Earth lives by some measure of faith. Uh, For example, the classic cheesy illustration of this is, you know, you come into a room, and without even thinking about it, you see a chair, and you just plop yourself down in that chair and just... You rest your weight in the chair, and you have faith in the strength of that chair. You don't test it. You don't measure it. You don't, you know, kick it around a little bit to make sure the chair is actually suitable for your weight. You just presume and have faith that the chair is going to hold you up. Now, again, cheesy illustration, but the reality is, is we all have some measure of faith. Now, when you look at the spiritual life, most of us, even unbelievers, have some measure of faith, but most people put their faith in themselves. That it's, I'm resting the weight or the pressure upon my, my ability, my mental uh, wherewithal, my understanding, my, my whatever. It, it's my strength, my resource, my talent, my ability, my whatever. And Paul says, that's not what I've heard of you. Epaphras has been telling me that you've been placing your faith in Christ Jesus. That, that you're not turning to yourself and, and you're not looking to your own strength and you're, you're not looking to your own wisdom. You're not looking to your own talent. You're literally turning your gaze upon Jesus Christ and you're saying, wow, God, this is going to be by your strength and by your power and by your might and by your will, and this is not going to be about me. Oh, what would it look like if you and I lived in that same manner? Uh, I've often described faith. My, my favorite illustration for this uh, is the plane. Uh, if we got up on a plane <clears throat> and I looked at you and I said, hey, I have an, oh, this is such an incredible view. And so I, I pull up in that side door of the airplane. I just say, look at this view. This is such a, just a magnificent view. And of course you, you want to see it fully. So you stand by the door and you're looking at this incredible view and I come up behind you and I just kind of go, Poof, you know? <laughs> And so now you're, and so as you're falling, I go, you know what? It You probably need a parachute. And so I, I go rummage around the back. I find this parachute, and I, I, throw the, whew, I throw the parachute towards you. And I yell out the plane, Do you believe? Do you have faith in the parachute? Now, of course, you could look up, and you can see the parachute and go, Yes, I believe in the parachute. And yet, you realize that's not actually going to help you. That, that faith, and again, and it's interesting in the New Testament, faith and belief, uh, it's the exact same word uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Faith is the noun, believe is the verb. So when I do the action of faith, that's called believing. And when I do that action of believing, oh, we call that faith. And so again, in in the Greek, it's the exact same word. One's a verb, one's a noun. But we, we translate it in two different ways, which makes it a little bit harder. But if you're looking at the parachute that's falling, and you just merely say, yes, I have this mental understanding of the parachute. Yes, I can see the parachute. I believe in that parachute. I have faith that that parachute will work. Well, that parachute will never help you. See, what you need to do is you need to somehow make your way over to that parachute. <laughs> and you gotta put that parachute on and strap that buddy all over you and just hold tight because it is your sole means of salvation. That's the word, faith biblically. That it's not just some mental understanding, it's not just some mental ascent, it's not a oh, a belief system. See, faith is practically applying, practically grabbing a hold of, and believing, actually practically believing in your sole means of salvation, which is Jesus. See, what would it look like if you and I lived like that? And Paul says, hey, Epaphras has been telling me all about your faith in Christ Jesus. And it's not just some mental understanding, it's not just some mental grasp that he's been telling me that you've actually grabbed a hold of Jesus, you've been putting on Jesus, and you're not living according to your wisdom, your strength, your resource, your power. You are living by him and all that he is wanting to do and accomplish in your life, which is why we call you a believer, because you are practically believing the word of truth. See, that's what it means to have faith. And again, if you'd like to dive deeper into this idea, I would encourage you to read the entire book of John. And I I know that's long. But when you read through the book of John, John uses that term for believe or faith, same word again. He uses it over a hundred times. That's more than the rest of the New Testament put together. And John is just constantly hammering this idea of believe, 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 have faith, have faith, have faith, that you are to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. So what would it look like for you and I to be known by our faith? That when the world looks upon us, they, they, they cannot describe how we live by our own wisdom, by our, by our own strength, our own talent, our own ability, or our own anything. Rather, what if the only explanation for our life was Jesus? That they would say, wow, you are living by faith. Now, it's interesting as you, as you look at this idea of faith, again, we don't have faith in a system. Uh, we don't have faith in a philosophy. We have faith in a person whose name is Jesus. And, and when you look at that idea throughout Scripture, there's several characteristics that, come or come up, uh, that become very apparent in Scripture. For example, in Romans 10, 17, there's this idea that faith comes by hearing. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, we are told that we learn to walk by faith. Uh, 1 Thessalonians tells us that we work by faith. Uh, Jesus tells us in Luke 17 that it doesn't take much faith at all even to move mountains. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we are told <clears throat> that faith is our shield against the works of the enemy. And again, I would encourage you to even go look up those passages and dive deeper because the reality is, is that you and I, to function as a believer, as a believer ought to function, we have to have Faith. For it is impossible to please God without faith, as Hebrews tells us. So we must walk in the reality of trusting in our God. See, we cannot trust in our finances. We cannot trust in our own, you know, uh, a resource and, and education and ability. See, we can't trust in the governments and the economic systems of the day. See, we cannot trust in the news programs. Our trust should be in the Lord God alone. And what an encouragement for the days in which we live, because it seems like the world is putting their trust in so many things other than Jesus. But what would it look like for you and I as believers to actually be believers and put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus alone? So Paul is is saying to the Colossians, he says, look, Epaphras has been telling me something and I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And because of that, man, I'm just giving God thanks all the time. And, and wow, I am praying always for you. Not just because of your faith that I've heard, but he says also the love which you have for all the saints. Paul says, I've heard of your love. Wouldn't it be neat to know, be known by our faith and by our love? Uh, Jesus in John uh, chapter 13 verse 35 says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. See, you and I are to be known for our love. And again, love is is. Love has been so perverted in our culture. Love has been so tainted. Love is not about what I can get. Love is all about what I can give. See, this word agape or agape. See, this word is this unconditional, relentless. Fervent kind of love. This is that love that, I mean, hey, you can beat it, you can put a crown of thorns upon it, you can nail it to a cross, and he's still going to overwhelmingly love you. See, what would it look like if you and I, especially in the body of Christ, were known for our love for one another? That somehow that the world, the onlooking world would see what's going on in the love between you and the fellow believers around you, and they would say, wow, there is something that's, that's deeper than family in that kind of community, in that, in that love relationship. See, wouldn't it be interesting if you came to church and every time you got together with, with a believer and your goal wasn't about, okay, what can they give me and, and what can I pull out of them? And and man, I really need some encouragement today. So I hope they give me an encouragement. And wow, I really hope this sermon's gonna pick me up. And wow, I really hope the worship's good. And I really hope. See, what if this was not about you? And what about your what, what, what if the whole motivation for you coming into a body every time that you met with a believer was, Lord, could you use this little life? to somehow encourage and exhort this person in front of me. Lord, could you use me today at church? Not about what I can get. And Lord, if you want to give me something phenomenal, man, I'll take it. Man, if you want to encourage me with the sermon, hey, I will take it. Hey, if you want to convict me, hey, if the worship is great, hey, that's phenomenal. But the reason I'm coming to church is not about what I can get and what I can obtain, but about what I can pour out. So Lord, could you use my life as an encouragement, as a blessing, for the people around me, and can I just roll up my sleeves and just say, hey, how can I meet your needs, and, and how can I pour my life out for you, and, and hey, how can I serve you? and See, wouldn't that be interesting? And I'm convinced that if a whole group of people got together and began to live like that, we would have to call them the church, wouldn't we? Because that is the reality of what the body of Christ is supposed to look like, that as Jesus said again, that you and I are to be known by our love. So as you look at what Paul is saying here, he's saying, hey, Epaphras has been telling me something. He's been talking about this faith that you have in Christ Jesus and this overwhelming love which you have for all the saints that you're just constantly pouring your life out. You're just constantly meeting the needs around you. And you just, see, this isn't about you. This is about putting your trust and faith in him and then allowing his life to flow in and through you because he is love itself. And he's going to flow his life through you to meet the needs of the world around you. And Paul says, hey, I've heard of that in your life. Could someone say that about you? Could could someone look at your life and just say, wow, I've heard something about that person. Wow, they have faith in Christ Jesus and love for the people around them. See, I want to be known for those two things because those are the two major things that we as believers are to be known for. Now, Paul says that because of all this, because I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love that you have for all the saints, verse four, therefore I'm giving thanks to God And praying always for you, verse 3, right? Now look at this, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He says, man, the whole reason I'm giving the thanks and the whole reason I am praying always for you. Yes, I've heard of your faith and and in your love, and that just excites me to know in, and I'm praying and encouraging you in that. But I am giving God thanks and praying for you because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Uh, Hope is interesting, isn't it? Uh, I remember uh, as a little kid, it's Christmas morning, and man, I was so hopeful. I was so hopeful to get the new bike. That's not this idea. See, this isn't a, a hopeful expectation of getting something. The idea here in the passage is more of the fact that you have something, therefore it produces hope. So it's not you hope that to have something, it's you have something that gives you hope. And what Paul is saying is, <clears throat> you have this hope laid up for you in heaven. That there is this inheritance, as we'll talk about later on in the, in the, in the book, that there is this uh, destiny, there's this eternity, there is this reality that you get to experience for all eternity, and you have hope in that reality. And Paul says you've heard of that, in this word of the truth, the gospel. So as the pastor has been preaching the gospel, you have heard this promise that when you put your faith in Christ Jesus, that you have this hope, this security laid up for you in heaven. That is such a phenomenal idea. And again, it's this guarantee that, hey, I, am, I have this thing laid up for me in heaven, therefore it currently produces hope in my life. So I can only really walk through the, the, the day and the months and the years with tremendous hope, knowing that I have this eternal future laid out in front of me. This isn't an, oh, no, I hope I'll make it. This is a, woo, I know I've got it. Therefore, I can live with hope now. So in the insecurities of life, hey, when all things go crazy, hey, when there's a new variant, hey, when, when the economy shut down, hey, when there's a new governmental system and there seems to be chaos, whatever it may be, Hey, I can walk with hope. Why? Because my hope is not in something shifting. Hey, my hope is guaranteed, which is a phenomenal idea. Uh, That word, laid up for you in heaven, uh, has this idea of to be saved up or stored up for future use. It's this idea of uh, reserved or guarded. Uh, One place this word is uh, is used is in 2 Timothy 4.8. Look at what this says. In 2 Timothy 4.8, it says, Uh, Paul's writing Timothy, he says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. So there is something that has been laid up. There's something that is sure and reserved and guaranteed for me because, man, I've been hoping in his second coming. Oh, and Paul says, I'm so excited that there is this there's this thing, there's this crown of righteousness reserved for me, waiting for me. Uh, that same idea, it's a different word, but the same idea shows up in 1 Peter. And uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, Peter says this. <coughs> Excuse me. Peter says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope.'" Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What an incredible idea. So Paul says, wow, I am just praising God. I'm just giving him so much thanks. I'm just, I'm praying always for you because you have this hope that is reserved for you in heaven. And why do you have that? Oh, you put your faith in Christ Jesus and you have this overwhelming love for all the saints. And that idea of hope, I just, just doing a quick overview of hope in the Bible is so interesting. Uh, But let me just give you a couple ideas. Uh, One, there's this idea that if you are an unbeliever, if you're unsaved, You do not have hope because you do not have God. And you can see that in Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, We're told that hope produces a desire to live holy and godly. So because I have hope, therefore I should desire to live godly and pure in this world in which we live, according to 1 John 3 and uh, chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter 1 reminds us that hope gives confidence and encouragement even during suffering. And as Hebrews 6 reminds us, hope becomes an anchor to our souls. We need hope as believers. And again, it's not a, oh, I really hope to have something. Oh, I really hope I get this later on in the future. See, it's not that idea. It's, it's guaranteed and you have it. Therefore, it produces hope in your life. Now, isn't it interesting As you're looking at verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul uses the language faith, love, and hope. And it's interesting to me that those three words, faith, hope, and love, are often linked together. For, For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, 1 Peter 1, 3, verse 5, and verse 22, see, there's these ideas of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And of course, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, we know that You know, these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But it's interesting how often these three words are linked together. And here they are again in our passage. Paul says, I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for these believers around you, and this hope that you have reserved for you. Again, I just find that really intriguing that he's bringing all those those three words together. Now, he says at the end of verse five, Uh, So because of this hope that's been laid up for you in heaven, now you've heard of this previously, he said, in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, look at verse 6. He says, this gospel which has come to you, and then he describes the gospel, just as in all the world, it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it is doing in you also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And, of course, you've learned this from Epaphras. He says, do you realize... That you have grabbed a hold of the reality of the gospel, that this gospel has grabbed you and it is now bearing fruit and multiplying, not just in your life, but also in the world. Now, we're going to be looking at this idea of the bearing fruit and the multiplication uh, in the next session, uh, because Paul kind of fleshes that out even more so in verse 9 through uh, 14. But it's interesting, he's talking about the gospel and he's saying, hey, look, You've heard the gospel from Epaphras, and again, I mentioned this in the overview, but the presumption that the scholars have is that Epaphras probably was in Ephesus at some point uh, during Paul's third missionary journey, and, and when Paul was there for two to three years, Epaphras heard this overwhelming gospel, took it back to this Lycus Valley, and started church, churches in Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis. And so Paul says, hey, you, you've learned, you've heard this gospel from Epaphras, And it is now bearing fruit. It's doing something in your life. Uh, We've often talked about the gospel around here and how the gospel has been dumbed down in the days in which we live. Uh, It's interesting. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul outlines his gospel, the the gospel that he proclaims. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the fact that the gospel that he is proclaiming, which is all about Christ and him crucified— He says, the gospel which I'm proclaiming is the fact that that, that Jesus came, he was buried, he died, he was buried, he rose again. And when you look at the fullness of what the New Testament teaches in terms of the gospel, uh, most of us have a truncated gospel. We have a very limited gospel. See, we just presume that the gospel is all about salvation. And it is. It's phenomenal. And we don't want to downplay that to any means. But the gospel is more than salvation. See, see, most of us have the idea that gospel is the pat on the head of God. Uh, it's, the, it's the mere hug of God in our, in our circumstance. It's here I am in my sin, in my rebellion, and God goes, oh, poor you. You know what? I love you. All right, I'll forgive you. But then I keep on sinning and God goes, oh, well, you know, hey, I love you some more. And, and so I'm going to keep forgiving you. And there is a truth in that. You know, First John tells us that we have an advocate. And, and if we do sin, hey, praise the Lord, we have someone who will forgive us. And yet the reality of the gospel is not merely forgiveness, it's the fact that you've been given everything you need, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, everything you need for a life and godliness has been provided for you in Christ. Uh, William Law, the great Puritan, used to say that, that the cross wasn't merely for salvation, the cross was for Pentecost. And what he was getting at is the fact that when you look at the fullness of the gospel, Yes, it's all about the the coming and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, but it's also about his ascension and and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because he needed to save you at the cross. He needed to forgive you of your sins so that he could fill you with his very spirit, which is called Pentecost. That his big agenda is not merely to, to pat you on the head and forgive you of your sins, as incredible as that is, as Ephesians says, that you have been forgiven, but then you've been brought into the heavenly realms and, and now sit in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And all things that have been placed beneath the feet of Jesus have been placed beneath your feet because you are in him. And now you can live this victorious, triumphant Christian life, not out of your resource and your ability and your strength and your talent, but by his grace, by his spirit, by his ability flowing in your life through the Spirit of God. So you need to grab a hold of the idea that when we're talking about the gospel, we're not merely talking forgiveness. That's a part of it. That's a, that's a huge part of it. But it's not just merely forgiveness. That the reality of the gospel is, yes, forgiveness, but it's, he's cleansing and changing you, and he's enabling you to be more like him. As Romans 8 verse 29 says, that he is conforming us to the image of his dear son. That what he's doing in our life is that he's using all of our circumstances, Romans eight twenty eight. Why? Oh, so that we begin to look like Jesus. Now, we don't become like Jesus. We do not become God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but we are to look like him. We are to have his character marked upon us. We are to be known as Christians because we are to look like Christ. And when we have his overwhelming power and ability and might in our lives through his spirit, then suddenly we can live like we're supposed to live. That the Christian life, the way as it's described, is is utterly impossible for you and I to live. You and I cannot live this impossible life called Christianity on our own. We need the God of the universe to come in and indwell our lives through the Spirit of God and produce something in us that we cannot do ourselves. And that enablement, that empowerment, we call grace. That his spirit is giving us that which we need to live this impossible life. See, isn't it an amazing thought that the reality of the gospel is not just salvation, as phenomenal as that is, but it's the fact that I've been saved and he's sanctifying my life and he's transforming me and making me more and more and more, ever more looking like Jesus, so that when the world sees my life, they don't just, they don't just see my life, they see him through my life. See, that is the reality of the gospel. So Paul says, look, I, you have heard the gospel. And, and Epaphras has been telling me all about the fact that, that you have learned this thing. Learned, by the way, in the passage in verse 7, that you've learned it from Epaphras. Uh, the word learned is where we get the term uh, discipleship. It's that same idea of uh, being a disciple. And it's really probably a better understanding, at least in our culture, of like an apprentice. And again, we don't have this culture, but, you know, go back a couple hundred years. <clears throat> if I wanted to be a blacksmith, uh, I would go up to the blacksmith and I would say, dear blacksmith, uh, I would like to be your apprentice. And the blacksmith says, okay, great. Uh, grab your stuff, move in. Uh, I have a little side room and you can live here and you can eat with us. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand. Uh, I just want to show up nine to five and learn the, the art of being a blacksmith. And the blacksmith would say, no, 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 uh, that's not how this works. That if you're going to be a blacksmith, you have to actually be an apprentice. That an, a, being an apprentice is not just information. It's not just knowing how to do the right things to be a blacksmith. It's living the life of a blacksmith. So if you're going to actually be an apprentice to me as a blacksmith, hey, you're going to have to live with my family, and you're going to have to eat our food, and you're going to have to learn our language, and, and you're going to have to see what we do for fun, and, and you're going to start building. I mean, everything of your life is going to have to be that of a blacksmith. So grab your stuff. Let's move in. See, that's this idea. See that being a disciple of Jesus, even in Jesus' day, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, it wasn't about gaining the information of a rabbi. See, being a disciple of a rabbi meant you wanted to be just like the rabbi. The whole point of it was for the rabbi to reproduce himself. So when Jesus picked his 12 disciples, he he was not interested just in them gaining information. He was interested in them gaining the life. And that's still true today because you and I are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Not just to have the information of the word, but to have the very life that the word is speaking of, Jesus. And so as you look at what Paul says, he says, look, you have been discipled. You have learned this from Epaphras, that this wasn't just mere information, that the reality of the gospel has taken a hold of your life, and this thing is now bearing fruit inside of you That's incredible. (laughs) So look at what Paul is saying again. In in verse 4, let's go back to verse 3. In verse 3, he's saying, hey, I'm giving God thanks. I'm always praying for you because there's this hope that is just reserved for you in heaven. And you have that because you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus. And this love of, of his life is just bubbling forth out of you. And this you've heard in this gospel that's been more than just information, you have come under and, and you've come under and you've taken on the life of a disciple, and you are actually grabbing a hold of the gospel and you are bearing the fruit of the life of a disciple. So that the gospel itself is to literally do something in our lives, it's to bear a fruit. And Paul says, you, You've done that uh, under Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant and slave. Can I ask you, have you fully embraced the gospel like that? Is, is the gospel just information to you? Is, is, the, is the gospel just mere information? Or have you fully embraced it? Is it just a bunch of head knowledge? Is your faith merely wrapped up in, in knowing a whole bunch of do's and don'ts and, and knowing some scriptures and, and having the information but not having the life? Wouldn't it be interesting if, like what Paul heard about those in Colossae, the same thing could be said about us? That somehow we in this generation could be known for our faith and for our love. That we have this overwhelming hope because we know, we know the hope that we have in eternity. See, what would it look like if the gospel was more than just head knowledge for us? What if it was more than just information that we've read in a book? See, what if the gospel has radically grabbed a hold of our lives and has changed us from the inside out? Paul says, wow, that's why I'm giving God thanks and always praying for you. Can I encourage you? Don't allow your Christianity just to be religion. Don't allow Christianity just to be head knowledge. Don't allow the reality of what God is wanting to do so powerfully in and through our lives just to be a a head nod and and something that we do on Sunday mornings. See, what would it look like if the fullness of the gospel, the, the The coming, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the outpouring. What if that was the reality of our life? And and what if we were constantly coming under, not just to gain the information as a disciple, but to actually have the very life of a disciple? See, you do not graduate from being a disciple. We, lifelong, are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because again, he is conforming us and ever making us more and more like himself. Do you have that? If not, can I encourage you to go after Jesus? Could I encourage you just to embrace him afresh? Could I just encourage you just to make this life, to, to come before the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I, I need this in reality. Give me a great love for you and your word. Oh, that's what I want for you. Now, in our next study, uh, I'm really excited. We're going to be looking <clears throat> uh, at uh, verses 9 down through verse 14, uh, and very specifically 9 through 11. And I would encourage you to, to join me in this study, read this in front, uh, read, read ahead, uh, see how much of this you can study, and to help you, uh, I've been creating study guides and some resources to help you actually dive into this book of Colossians. And if you're interested, just go to the link below this video or the podcast if you're listening on, a, on, on the podcast, the audio, and in there you'll see a link where you can sign up to get the, the resources and the study guides. And, and I'm doing this purposely because I don't want you just to listen to a message. I want you to handle the text. I want you to wrestle through. I I want you to somehow explore this wonderful, incredible book called Colossians and just dive into the reality of Jesus Christ. And so if you're interested in going deeper yourself and learning how to study the word, I would highly encourage you to click on that link and grab some of those resources. But if nothing else, read Colossians chapter one, specifically look at verses nine through 11 uh, in the section of nine through 14. And uh, I'm so excited for what we're going to be diving into. Uh, let's just pray and uh, just give this time unto Jesus. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that we have this, such a privilege to not just hear the gospel, but to be a disciple of it. Lord, we don't want to just gain more information. Lord, we want to look like you. So Lord, I, I pray that our faith would be more than just head knowledge. Our, our faith wouldn't just be in a, some philosophy or a system or even a religion. Our faith would be in a person, you. Lord, I pray that your life and your character, this love, this agape, would so fill us up that it just oozes out of our lives and that it just grabs a hold of the world around us and this world be overwhelmed by the reality of love. Lord, we desperately need that in our culture today. Lord, we need people in the church who are are more interested in the life than they are of information. Lord, I pray that you would just give supernatural revelation and insight into your word. I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for truth. And Lord, I just thank you that we have such a privilege to share in your overwhelming life. So Lord, I pray that we'd be full believers in the full gospel in this generation. Lord, we just thank you for all that you're doing in these days. We give you the praise and the glory in your precious and most powerful name we pray. Amen.